good for us to gather to worship God and we can do so by singing Psalm 24 from Sing Psalms The world and all in it are God's, all peoples of the earth for it was founded by the Lord upon the seas beneath We'll sing the whole psalm Day. 
The day that reminds us of the resurrection of the Saviour from the dead. And as we have been singing, he is now not only risen, but has been highly exalted. And has ascended to the highest place in heaven. And there he is, just now, as we gather in his name. Uh, to worship you we thank you Lord that the Saviour's exaltation uh, reminds us of your great purpose of salvation and that one consequence uh, of our sinfulness was your son becoming a man and one consequence of him becoming a man was not only that he suffered on the cross and paid the penalty for sin, but as a man he rose again from the dead, and as a man he ascended to heaven, and as a man he sits on the throne of God. And it's astonishing for us to realize that afresh, that there, in the, in the center of glory, is your beloved Son. And we thank you, Lord, that we can see him, as the author of Hebrews tells us, that we see Jesus highly exalted. We don't see yet everything put under him, but we know that's the next great stage in your incredible plan. And that one day uh, the Savior, in a way that we don't understand, will be the head of the entire cosmos. <coughs> Help us then, Lord, to worship him as we worship you. And to be glad that we not only know about uh, the activities of Jesus in this world uh, when he lived a perfect life and died an atoning death but we know that he is still central uh, to the, the kingdom of God and that one day that will be made very clear and he will be the focus of the attention of the number that no one can count of all the redeemed who will be gathered in from all the periods of time and all the places of the world and we thank you Lord that today although we cannot see them we are united to them by the Holy Spirit uh, the one whom Jesus sent from heaven after he ascended and who now enables us to join with them and worshipping you as if we actually were physically in your presence. So Lord, we pray that you, we would be thankful for the gospel and the amazing implications that it has. And we know that one effect of the gospel is the church, and that the church is precious to yourself, and you show that that um, interest in the various instructions that your word has and as we think today about offices in the church uh, help us above all to remember that it's your church 
and that is a means of expressing our uh, gratitude to you by being interested and participating in the activities of your church. So help us today as we consider in this morning's service deacons, servants of God in a particular way in local churches. And we need your help in understanding that. And we just pray, Lord, that you would guide us and teach us uh, by your Spirit. Uh, bless the congregation here and every person uh, connected to it and that you would remember them all individually and as families with all their various needs. Uh, we pray that you would remember them all according to how they need you to work in their lives. And we pray that you would be doing so in a way that would be revealing your mercy and your compassion as well as your wisdom. Lord, we pray for your church throughout the world and what a terrible world we're living in as we see various things happening all the time. <coughs> the one thing we can say about it all is that sin is pervasive and it's also active. And it's showing itself in myriad number of ways, uh, far too many for us even to start to list. But we do realize we're living in an ungodly society and uh, unrighteousness is being promoted at a very uh, fast rate and there's a massive decline uh, taking place in the outlook of society and yet we have to be salt and light within it and we pray therefore for our, our world a world that's lost and that is a terrible word to fully appreciate and we just pray Lord that you in your mercy today through the gospel as it's preached in countless places that you would start to revive your cause and that the gospel once again would flourish not just in our country uh, but throughout the world and we pray therefore that the Savior the one who's been exalted to give repentance that he would be giving repentance throughout the world today indeed in every place where the gospel is preached and if that's needed here we pray Lord that repentance would be marking our response as well we remember the situations where your church suffers for the faith and have in a more marked manner and we pray that you would uphold your people and help them in these uh, very trying circumstances that they endure and we just ask you Lord to be near them all we pray for the parts of the world where there's war going on and we're very much aware of the Middle East and Ukraine but there's wars in many other places as well and we ask you, Lord, in the midst of all these uh, desperate situations, uh, that peace would somehow come and that righteousness would be um, seen 
and also that any provisions that are required that they would be able to get through Lord we just pray for our world with all its terrible circumstances and we ask you Lord to work uh, through governments and other agencies that are trying to do something about uh, those circumstances Lord bless the uh, children who are here and we pray that all of them will grow up to serve you and to be your people in the years ahead so remember us in our service we pray and we commit ourselves to you then each one of us as individuals before you and speak to us we pray for your own name's sake amen I'd like to speak to the children just now. Um, couldn't we really think of something to say since we're going to speak about deacons and the service? But I did um, wonder what crossed Paul's mind when he thought of churches. And obviously he wrote different letters to various churches and each time he wrote one he must have had in his mind's eye the people to whom he was writing. And in the chapter that we're going to read later on Paul in his mind's eye as he begins the letter to the church in Philippi tells us what he thought of the congregation and this is what he says and I want you to notice the word with because he's stressing it and this is what he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons so he didn't have to use the word with he could have used the conjunction and and it would still have been true wouldn't it if he had said to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi and the overseers and deacons but he didn't he thought about the church in Philippi he realized that there was a dimension to them that he wanted to stress in his greeting and the greeting is the word the stress sorry is the word with that in the church in Philippi there was no as it were separation between the saints and the office bearers there was a togetherness they were with each other and I think that's important for us to remember whether we're children or adults that as we have a picture of the church in our minds would we use the word with or the word and because the word with is very important 
So I want you to remember that. And if you don't know what the word with means, just ask your mum and dad when you go home. Um, wants to sing again, this time from Psalm 112 in the Scottish Psalter. And we'll sing verses 1 to 6. Praise ye the Lord, the man is blessed, or fears the Lord aright, who in his commandments doth greatly take delight. We'll stand and sing the psalm.
like us to read uh, two passages uh, from the New Testament. The first one is Philippians chapter 1, and we can read verses 1 to 11, and then 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And then in uh, 1 Timothy and chapter 3. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, (coughs) not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. (coughs) Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. 
for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And may God bless those readings to us. We can now sing from uh, Psalm 16 and sing psalms and we'll sing verses 1 uh, to 7. Protect me, O my God, you are my refuge true. I said you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Verses 1 to 7.
Well, as has been indicated in the newsletter, and <coughs> want to look at the topic of uh, deacons uh, today, this morning, and God willing, next Lord's Day as well. I suppose the most important question to ask is, what does the Bible say about deacons? And from one point of view, the answer is, not very much. Um, word deacons occurs three times in the New Testament. Uh, once in Philippians chapter 1, as we read, and twice in the other chapter we read where Paul um, refers to deacons there also. Some people suggest that the, the origin of deacons is found in Acts chapter 6 where there is a crisis in the church in Jerusalem and the kind of ethnic crisis where the, the um, Hellenistic or the Greek speaking widows are not being provided for and the apostles are told of the dilemma and on the assumption that they could do something about it and their response was that the congregation or congregations in Jerusalem should uh, choose devout, several devout men uh, to deal with what we might regard as a fairly uh, basic problem. And uh, as far as we can tell from Acts chapter 6, the appointment of those individuals uh, seems to have sorted out the difficulty that was in the congregation. And because it was involved with a practical matter, it's assumed that, um, that that was the origin of the idea of deacons. Um, lots of um, big names can be used to support that idea but personally it looks to me as if all that's mentioned in Acts chapter 6 is the formation of a temporary committee and that they um, solved the matter and, and that was it so whether it was the origin of deacons or not I'm personally not convinced about it really and since the Bible doesn't say they were deacons, I'm not sure that we should either. The word itself, of course, the word deacon is almost the Greek word diakonos. And it occurs numerous times in the New Testament and in all kinds of different situations. <coughs> For example, in Romans chapter 13, um, the emperor 
Well, he's a diakonos. He's a servant of God. He's a pagan. But um, in God's providential um, rule of the of the earth, um, He gives power to certain individuals, and they reign on His behalf, and are meant to pursue justice and so on. And the title that's given to them by Paul is that He's a servant of God. But, um, and at the time Paul wrote uh, Romans, it's calculated that. Uh, the man in charge was Nero and if Paul himself hadn't referred to him as a servant of God we, we probably wouldn't have dreamed of saying so either but um, there he is people in acts of public service this word uh, diakonos was used to describe them on the other hand, it's also used to describe the servants at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. That the, we know the story of how they ran out of wine at the wedding, and and um, Jesus um, solved the situation by making turning the water into wine. But the people that were uh, filling the the utensils with water and so on these servants they're called the same word deacons and there's lots of other examples of the word itself so we have to ask ourselves well, why is it used in this special way in the church and the answer to that of course is that they deal with practical things. I mean, that's what a ruler is meant to do. He deals with practical things. They might be often very high, but they are issues to do with practical things. And the same thing went for the servants in whatever the wedding in Cana was held. In the verse we read in Philippians chapter 1, uh, in Philippi, uh, we, as we mentioned earlier, they are highlighted, the elders, the overseers, the deacons. And that tells, of course, that in a Christian church there are two offices. There's elders, that points to their them sort of experience, they've lived long enough to have experience but they've also got um, certain gravitas and they have the ability to use authority appropriately and then, then there's uh, deacons well they would look after um, practical things in the church and as I'm sure we noticed both terms are plural so it's um, not appropriate to have one elder in a church there should be more than one and it's not appropriate to have one deacon <coughs> there should be more than one so in the church in Philippi there were both plurality of elders 
and a plurality of deacons. Now, apart from the reference in Titan, sorry, in First Timothy, Paul doesn't really refer to deacons anywhere else. And I, I suppose that does raise the question, why does he refer to them in the letter to the Philippians? And I think we get the answer to that question in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul uh, commends the church in Philippi for all the practical help they had given him. He says that the, in ch chapter 4 and verse 15, or verse 14, But it was kind of you to share my trouble. I mean, Paul's in prison in Rome. And I mean, prisoners in the ancient world were 100% dependent on people supplying their needs. The governments didn't give them anything. So they had to get help from somewhere. And Paul was in prison for several years. And, or imprisoned I should say, because he was under house arrest for some of that time. But uh, one day, in the, do in the door of wherever Paul was, walks Epaphroditus, a member of the church in Philippi. And he has, for Paul, a gift from the church in Philippi. And no doubt Paul was very glad to get that, and we're not surprised that he commends Epaphroditus highly in chapter 2, where he even refers to him as the one who ministered uh, to his need. But however welcome that particular gift was, it wasn't the first time the Philippians had done it. We're told there in verse uh, 14 and 15 of chapter uh, 4 that you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you can read about that in the book of Acts. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So, I think there we get the, a clue as to why Paul thought so much of the deacons in Philippi that he mentions them in the greeting that they had been uh, very active in supporting him throughout his service of Christ over many years, about 20 years have passed since the start of the church in Philippi and he has again and again received help from them. So we could probably say about where they used these terms or not we could probably say about the people in Philippi, the deacon's court in Philippi, it was very well organized. And also very um, diligent and very committed to the functions it had to perform. And indeed as we look at the New Testament, um, I think we can see that there were three ways in which these deacons functioned. 
there was um, helping in local situations, wherever they were. And of course, no doubt, they had very similar things as to what uh, people today may have. And then there was the one I've just mentioned when they were helping God's servants in different places uh, throughout the world. And there's a third one, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we're all aware of it. There was this big collection that Paul was putting together for uh, the needy saints in Jerusalem. For some reason, uh, all the believers in Jerusalem had come into hard times. There was a famine, and maybe that was a cause for a lot many consequences. And Paul's answer to that situation was to make a big collection from all churches throughout the Roman Empire. And they were to take this to Jerusalem in order to help the believers there. And he refers to this collection many times which could almost be seen as reminders to deacon's courts that this collection has been made and you have to do it because I'm coming, he says, to pick it up he mentions that to a church in Corinth, for example where he tells them to lay aside something every Lord's Day for this overall collection so the Deacons, as we can see, had a very important role. And then when we turn to the other passage that we read, then we find the kind of people that should be deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul has sent him there, as he says in verse um, 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Timothy was an established church. Sorry, Ephesus was an established church. It's quite interesting to, um, at least to me it was interesting, um, it might not be to anybody else, but at least to me it was interesting that if you compare um, Paul's letter to Timothy and his letter to Titus because these are the two letters in which he talks about elders writing to Titus Titus is in, a, in Crete where he and Paul have been involved in planting numerous churches because Paul does say in Titus that they've managed it's quite an extraordinary statement they have managed to plant churches in every city every town in Crete, Crete and that's incredible isn't it because they weren't there that long but whatever the period was how long it was Paul and Titus had managed to plant churches in all these different locations and Titus is left there to establish these new congregations and it's interesting in Titus not only what is mentioned but what is not mentioned and as he Paul gives Titus advice on how to um, get these new churches going he says nothing about deacons but he does say things about elders so uh, it looks as if the priority for new churches is to first of all to get elders functioning 
But when we come to Ephesus, which is an established church, but there's been problems there, and Timothy has been sent to, to deal with them, we can see from chapter 3 that it's not just elders that Timothy has to focus on in an established church, but also deacons. He has to appoint them. So it's been telling us that it's an important part of an established church to have a healthy group of deacons. The obvious question that arises from having both elders and deacons mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is what's the difference? And there can be a way of explaining the difference which can give us kind of false emphasis. I don't know if, if you've heard this, but I've heard it described as elders do spiritual work and deacons do practical work. And at one level, that's all right. But it carries the implication, doesn't it, that what the deacons are doing is not spiritual. And that is a wrong deduction. What an elder does is spiritual as he governs the church. Not by himself, of course, because there has to be a plurality. And deacons, while they focus on what can be described as the practical needs of the church, we are never to think that their activities are not spiritual. They are spiritual. And that is the reason why, when we look at the character description of a deacon, it is very high. And we'll look at that in a minute. But I want to say something about the descriptions of the elders and the deacons that are given in First Timothy chapter 3. Just a general comment about them. And uh, we may imagine that these roles, elders and deacons, are only for elevated Christians who somehow or other have managed to become better than other Christians. But as you read through the list of the qualifications for both elders and deacons, there's only one that's not required of every Christian. The one qualification that's, requ that's not required of them, of every Christian, is the ability to teach. And that is one of the qualifications for an elder. But all the other features that are mentioned, whatever they, they happen to be, whether it is above reproach, respectable, hospitable, and so on, gentle, well, all these features they're required of every Christian. If someone is lacking these features, 
It's not just their suitability for eldership or for deaconship that is in question. It's actually their Christianity that's in question. Because all these things that are listed there, and we'll look at the ones with the deacons in a minute, they're required of every Christian. There's no actual difference in that sort of sense. And we'll see the reason in a minute why everybody can't be a deacon. But anyway, I think it's important to remember that. That the standards for elders and deacons are the same as for every Christian. Or to put it another way around, every Christian should be as holy as a deacon or as an elder. So it's consistent Christianity that is mentioned there by Paul. Talking about deacons there from verse 8 and onwards, he highlights four requirements of a deacon. I just want to mention each of them uh, briefly. First one there in verse 8. Here's the deacon's disposition, we might say. What does a deacon, what's he like? Well, Paul tells us he's to be dignified. And then goes on to highlight, by use of three negative words, what this dignity or disposition points to. And deacon, we're told, well, he must be reliable. He is not to be double-tongued. And Banyan's got a character called Mr. Speaking Two Things or something. Point is, if someone is not consistent with their speech, if they say one thing to one person and another thing to another person, it disqualifies them from being a deacon. I mean, that's quite obvious, isn't it? Practical. I mean, a deacon must be truthful, consistently truthful, a man of his word. When people hear what he has to say, they know that is what he has to say. He's also, not only has he got to be reliable, but he's got to be self-controlled, not addicted to too much wine. I mean, one of the problems in the ancient world was they didn't have tea or coffee. And the only thing that they had to have as refreshments was wine. And if that is the situation that you're facing, well, how many cups of coffee do you have a day? If you change that to cups of wine, well, then you can see what the danger is, can't we? And uh, the danger is not really that the man who's going to, who is a deacon or may become a deacon is 
um, getting drunk because that's not what Paul says he doesn't say what he stresses is that the man isn't addicted to wine when would they take wine well probably when they were doing nothing this man if he's going to be a deacon he has to be self-controlled not just merely in the sense that he doesn't touch the wine but that in circumstances where people were prone to drink it this man wouldn't be there he would be self-controlled it's part of his dignity his gravitas he's not an idler and at the same time in addition to being reliable and not being and being self-controlled he's generous he's not selfish he's not greedy for dishonest gain and we can understand why that would be a good qualification given that the man has to show compassion to those in need deacon's courts have to deal wisely but they are to be generous so that's his dignity his disposition then Paul looks on to mention his doctrinal convictions or the deacon's doctrinal convictions there is a kind of notion around that somehow or other a deacon's understanding of doctrine doesn't have to be at the same level as an elder's that's not what Paul says here he says there in verse 9 they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience the word mystery doesn't mean mysterious it was a first century term that actually meant the opposite of mysterious it actually describes something that had been revealed something that previously had been hidden but was now revealed and that's the gospel the gospel had been hidden for centuries God had hidden it but then when Jesus came into the world and he lived, in this, lived a perfect life and died on the cross and ascended to heaven afterwards the, the secret was out it was revealed people now knew what the message was and the, the deacon anybody that's going to be a deacon Paul says he doesn't just say they should understand the mystery of the faith he says they should hold it therefore it's something precious to them something they cling to something they won't let go they actually understand it to the extent they can explain it and explain it in such a way that the person who's listening to them picks up that they regard it as very precious a, doctor, a deacon 
has to have a high grasp of the doctrines of the Christian faith which is of course why anybody becomes a deacon in the free church has got to say that they believe everything in the Westminster Confession of Faith not just have you read the Confession of Faith but do you hold it hold it preciously to you how does one become like that well the answer to that question is found in Psalm 1 you meditate in the word day and night and you become like a tree a tree that stands in the storms a tree that gives shelter in the sun I think Psalm 1 is a good picture for every Christian but especially for those who are in office in the church so Paul speaks about the, the deacon's disposition and he speaks about his doctrinal convictions and then in verse um, 10 he speaks about how to discover them and he says to do that let them be tested first it's a lot easier in a certain sense to test a deacon than it is to test an elder because the, the testing of a, a deacon well the effects will be visible people will see them what kind of help do they offer How, what is the intensity of their involvement and therefore when, he talk, when Paul talks about them saying that they should be tested I don't think he's saying that they should be tested the way that gold is tested I think he's just referring to observation how do they do things are they 100% committed to what they're doing or are things done casually Paul says you discover them by observation testing them there's lots of little things that people can be doing and they reveal that they've got a real commitment or sometimes it reveals that the commitment well maybe it's the wrong word that's been used chosen by those that know them know their characters know their desire to do things and such should be it should be so obvious says um, Paul that um, they should be blameless no one can point the finger at them doesn't mean perfect just a high consistency of life that's how they're discovered and then in verse um, 11 and 12 Paul refers to their domestic situation 
talks about their wives. <laughs> it's rather surprising. He doesn't talk about the wives of elders. But he does talk about the wives of deacons. And I suppose we have to ask, why? And I suppose the answer to that question is that, well, it's likely that uh, the deacon's wife would be involved in what her husband was doing. And as the deacon goes around practically helping people in the congregation, well, she would be involved in that one way or another and therefore she has not to got she says Paul she's not got to be a slanderer but to be sober minded faithful in all things reliable I mean the word slander well in today's world it refers to something serious but I think in New Testament times it just referred to something that wasn't true. He just said something that wasn't right. And Paul says that the wives of deacons can't be guilty of that. Faithful in all things. And he also points out that uh, a deacon, well, they had to manage, I have to stop in a minute, the deacons had to manage their household well. The household doesn't refer to their children. In the ancient world, people usually lived in households. And in the household, there would be the mother and the father, and there would be the children, and there would be the servants perhaps the employees in modern terminology but a deacon had to be known in the community that he managed his household everything connected to him he managed it well so we can see that can't we that to be a deacon well, it requires consistency of character. Paul actually points out, and I close with this, that a deacon gets two benefits. Mentioned there in verses 13. They get a good standing. Deacons, because they deacon, get highly respected. Because it's inevitable that their activities are public. It just is. People know about them. And a deacon, well, he gets a good standing. The church appreciates him. Or them, because it's a plural thing. And the church approves of what they do they get a good standing that's the external benefit there's also an internal benefit Paul says that when they do that live in this way they get great confidence in the faith 
that's in Christ Jesus. There's inward development of their own spiritual stature. They get bold. What's the word confidence means? Boldness. Not not um, some kind of um, aggressiveness, but they just become determined. Determined to serve God. It's a great privilege to be a deacon. It's a great responsibility. But it's a... Uh, how would we describe it? Well, I'll describe it this way. A deacon is someone with a servant's heart who wants to honor Jesus Christ in helping with the needs and other requirements of God's people and to do it with great determination. And at the end of the day, when someone does that, Jesus will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Shall we pray? Lord, Christian life, we know it's about godliness. Godliness shows itself in different ways. But godliness always shows itself. It shows itself in what we do in the world. It shows itself what we do in our homes. It shows ourselves what we do in the church. Lord, we pray that as the congregation looks for new deacons, that you would point the minds of the people to those who can fulfill this role and that those who have the possibility of doing it that they would understand the necessity and the obligation to serve Christ in this way so Lord Remember the congregation at this time, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll close by singing Psalm 15 and sing psalms. Lord, who may stay within your tent, your sacred dwelling place, and who upon your holy hill may live before your face. <coughs>
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit,